When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Elvis, please leave the building. Edition, it's Wednesday, June 29th, 2022. On today's show, Baz Luhrmann, he of Strictly Ballroom and Moulin Rouge fame, now gives us Elvis, a biopic starring Austin Butler as the king, and Tom Hanks as his infamous manager, Svengali Colonel Tom Parker. And then Hulu and FX together bring us the series The Old Man. It stars Jeff Bridges as a CIA agent who disappeared himself decades ago, but is now being hunted by an old enemy. Also stars John Lithgow and Amy Brenneman. And finally, bullying or justice? We discuss a New York Magazine article, Cancelled at 17. Joining me today is Julia Turner, Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. Hey, so listen, you're uh, a little under the weather, so didn't make it to Elvis. So we're going to sub in for you for that segment, if that's all right. I'm grateful for your assistance. Uh, Anytime. And of course, uh, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hello, hello. Uh, We want to make a show. We ready? Let us do it. All right. Well, the Australian director Baz Luhrmann is, I think, best known for his jumpy, hallucinatory take on the musical form, Moulin Rouge being his uh, probably best known movie, certainly his commercial breakthrough. He now brings us Elvis, the movie Elvis feature film, perhaps as natural a fit of artist to subject matter as uh, I can think of. Elvis uh, was among the deepest trip America has ever taken into its own hallucinatory apprehension of itself. This is sort of a sort of a biopic. I mean, I, we'll get into that. I mean, you might call it that, you might not. Uh, it comes with this conceit. The movie's told also, so there are a lot of sort ofs here, sort of from the point of view of an aged and dying Colonel Parker, the man who took over and crafted Elvis's career after Elvis broke through. This is very important with Sam Phillips, the founder and head of Sun Records, and together they created rock and roll. There is so much to discuss here. Uh, it's it's a smorgasbord. I mean, it's, it's really stuffed full. But let's, for now, say the movie stars Austin Butler as Elvis, Tom Hanks as Parker, and Olivia DeJong as Priscilla Presley, uh, Elvis's wife. The clip we're going to hear... Uh, it, it comes with Elvis at something of a career nader, though he has a bunch of those. Um, he's asked to don a Christmas sweater and sing carols in a holiday TV special. But as the king tells his bandmates, he has something else in mind. You know, back when I was starting out, some people wanted to put me in jail, even kill me because of the way I was moving. 
So they cut my hair, they put me in uniform, and they sent me away. I killed my mother. I have since then. I've been lost. And when you're lost, people take advantage. I need you fellas to help me get back to who I really am. And who are you, Elvis? Well, sir, as hell ain't somebody who sings Christmas songs by a fireplace for an hour. Oh, my. No, no, he isn't. All right. Well, for this segment, we're joined by a cherished friend of the program, CFOP Jack Hamilton. In addition to being a CFOP Jack, you do have a slightly larger resume than that. You are a American Studies, Media Studies professor at UVA, pop critic for Slate, and oh, so, I mean, talk about apt fit of subject matter and artist. You're the author of Just Around Midnight, Rock and Roll and the Racial Imagination. Jack, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I'm going to stick you on ice for a second because, uh, as per tradition, I'm going to turn to Dana, the film critic, and say, Dana, uh, it's quite a, uh, as I said, smorgasbord. It's very Baz Luhrmann. Um, I guess it's kind of very Elvis. What do you make of this picture? I mean, I can just say, as a film watcher, that I did not like this movie at all. I'm really repelled, actually, by its its vision of what Elvis meant in terms of sort of racial appropriation, and we can get into all of that with Jack. But also, just on a on a simple structural level, this movie is bad. It is at least mm-hmm. half an hour too long. It has that that dizzy Baz Luhrmann editing style where the montages are more important than the dramatic scenes by far. Like what you come out of this movie remembering is all the sort of snazzy, jazzy montages of, you know, this very fake looking Beale Street in Memphis and I don't know, road trips with the Colonel. And there's like lots and lots of flash and glitz and abrupt editing and almost no scenes that develop any of the characters. It is exhausting. Tom Hanks's accent is inscrutable. I just don't know what's going on. I will say that I think both Austin Butler and Tom Hanks bring a lot of dignity to some pretty thankless roles. Uh, Tom Hanks's because it's so excessive and overwritten and Elvis's, Austin Butler's part, because it's so underwritten and we have such a slight idea of of who he is because he's just constantly the background of some sort of montage. Anyway, and even the music in this movie is kind of a muddle. This isn't really a musical exactly, although it's obviously full of vocal performances. And there's a mix of of lip syncing to Elvis's actual voice, which I think happens later in the movie, if I understand correctly, and then Austin Butler recreating his voice, and the two don't really seem to have any continuity. I just, I could not wait for this movie to end. I mean, I've never been a Baz Luhrmann fan anyway, but this movie just, just made me mad. It, it, it brings <laughs> shame to rock and roll, to biopics, <laughs> to cinema itself. All right, I hand it over to Jack. Um, you didn't disappoint, Dana. Uh, Jack, let's just if you would very briefly, there's a gigantic asterisk hovering over hovering over my introduction. <laughs> it's not uncontroversial to say that Sam Phillips and Elvis invented rock and roll, but something you acknowledge in your terrific, terrific piece on this uh, movie is that the recordings that they made, Elvis and Phillips, between fifty four and fifty eight, under the Sun uh, Records, Aegis, they ch- they changed the world. That's without controversy. Whether you loathe Elvis for uh, his appropriations of black music or, or not. 
I mean, he's just an incredibly complicated figure. I have a, I have a hard time thinking of a more complicated figure in um, American popular culture. But really, his innovation is almost a sort of cultural one more than a musical one. I think of Elvis as really kind of a synthesizer in terms of his, uh, his, his, his approach to music. I mean, he was a phenomenally talented singer. Was he actually all that sort of musically innovative? I think, you know, that's up for debate. There's certainly musicians of his generation that I would argue are more innovative, certainly someone like Chuck Berry or um, someone like Buddy Holly, I would say, who I think is sometimes gets a little bit overlooked in these discussions of uh, of sort of 50s rock and roll icons. Um, yeah, but Elvis didn't invent rock and roll. <laughs> Elvis wouldn't have claimed to invent rock and roll. But what he does do is raise it to a level of prominence. And he he invents a lot of ideas about rock and roll, I think, in terms of the way that Elvis is received by the public that he, you know, just totally captivates starting in early 1956. Something I think your piece gets at terrifically well is that the contradiction of Elvis makes him in an inapt subject for a biopic in some ways, that there's um, very little depth or self-awareness in the real Elvis, which in a way allowed the massive cultural projections to land upon him in some sense, that he was the right person at exactly the right moment. He was very unusual. He was charismatic in an interesting and new and unexpected and very threatening way, racially threatening way to white America. I think the film isn't wrong about that. But as a person, he was if not a blank, he was somewhat inscrutable. I'm very just curious to hear what you what you made of the movie. I mean, it, it just as a film um, and as a possible, you know, embroidery on on the real story. Yeah, I mean, I would I, would, I agree with Dana that the movie's terrible. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things about this movie that was really disappointing was that it's actually a lot of it is very much rehash. You know, a lot of it it's not really saying anything new about Elvis. It hits all of the time worn beats of his life, but it doesn't really reframe them in any in any creative or interesting way. It's just sort of you know warmed over hagiography. And I think Steve, as you mentioned, like. Part of the problem with Elvis is that he isn't a particularly interesting person, at least in terms of how he has been presented to the world. You know, he's someone who uh, he becomes famous incredibly young. Uh, You know, he's 20 when he signs his contract with RCA and pretty soon he's like the most famous human being on the face of the earth. He lives half his life in this state of unimaginable fame, you know, just someone and certainly by the end of his life, um, you know, he's become something of a recluse and and, and having, you know, just all sorts of problems and things like that. But there's not really we've never come to know Elvis as a person because he was always this sort of symbol that was so much larger than himself. Mm. Um, so th- there's not really a interiority to him. And this is sort of comes out in people who knew him. I mean, there's like I was reading a interview somewhat recently with Rita Moreno, where she was talking about how she went on a few dates with Elvis because uh, she was trying to make Marlon Brando jealous or something. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> As one and she, does. Yeah. And does. she was like, he was just really boring. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, with Elvis. Yeah. Like it's like he didn't really have a chance to ever become a fully developed adult because of the fact that everything happens to him so quickly. And that I think that's really, it's something that happens to him. He's he's almost a passive figure mm-hmm. um, in, in, like, it's not Elvis, you know, he's not a, a character like, 
yeah, I mentioned before, Chuck Berry, who's quite a bit older when he comes to prominence, or even someone like the Beatles, who had spent all of this time, you know, playing these small clubs. There's, like, there's a whole important life of the Beatles prior to them getting famous. Um, Elvis basically gets famous, like, a couple years after he's graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. Um and like, yeah, that's, I mean, it, there's a really interesting question about what that does to a person. The movie's right. not really interested in exploring that, though, because like to explore that would get at some of the more unseemly and very, very complicated aspects of the Elvis myth. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I think one of the ways that Lerman tries to grapple with that is especially preposterous. He tries to make Elvis woke and you know <laughs> and as as if Elvis at the time in real time was conscious of what he was doing and did it as a way of honoring the black music that in fact he was just stealing it's as if Elvis himself had read all the culture studies pieces about Elvis and <laughs> yeah. and preempted them in some sense something there's just literally no evidence for um but just to announce my own position on Elvis going in for what it's worth is I fall somewhere weirdly between Grial Marcus and Chuck D. And you can catch me in, in, you know, kind of either mood in a way that, you know, Marcus has done this amazing job of walking the line between writing very sober analyses of the cultural importance of Elvis while also allowing that, like, that you can't, it's an empirical fact that he was this mythic you know, embodiment of mid-century America and the relationship between white and black and it and superego in this just eruptive way, right? So, I mean, in a way, Marcus, you know, Mystery mystery Train and the Presley ad, I mean, he sort of inflates him while Mm -hmm. getting him right in some sense. Like, like inflation is part of it. And then, of course, Chuck D, who was like, you know, Elvis was a hero to most, but he didn't mean shit to me. I mean, that was just, (laughs) like, that had to be said. I mean, all of hip-hop is a repudiation of of that theft, of that very theft of of black music mm-hmm. by white rock and roll performers and impresarios, and I, I I just thought it was crazy the way this movie tried to pretend that that was present in the consciousness of Elvis. Um, I feel like before we close this segment, I mean, we just have to talk about the way black people appear in this movie. Yeah. I mean, I'm utterly flabbergasted that in 2022, Appalling. a movie was made that, yeah. that that has a portrait of race like this movie. First of all, there are no real black characters. Every single black actor in the movie is just performing blackness, right? Is sort of yeah. performing the blues or, you know, sensuality or Beale Street or some sort of insane racial stereotype. B.B. King is a character, but he does nothing but as well sort of explain explain to Elvis kind of what the blues are about or something about power and privilege. I don't know. As you say, Steve, that everybody is is talking about wokeness in this very 2022 kind of way. But I just keep returning to this early scene where the young Elvis, played by a child actor in this scene, is peering in with some of his young black friends because he grows up in a mostly black neighborhood at this shack where the blues are being played. And and then there's this kind of carnal theater being performed in front of his eyes. I mean, I really, it seemed like a racial imaginary from 50, if not 100 years ago. Right. It, the movie exhibits all of the pathologies that turned Elvis into a star, right? It's like attempting to diagnose them, Jack, and all it yeah. does is reproduce them. 
all of the black characters in the film are basically there to vouch for Elvis in this way that is just mm. completely Horrible. bizarre and yeah. makes me feel it felt like I was while I was watching the movie like this movie feels deeply insecure um, but it can't grapple but trying to actually grapple with that insecurity of like the racial complexities of, of everything that Elvis represents would have made for an interesting film but instead mm-hmm. like it can't do that so instead you've just got all of these black characters who are essentially just like constantly patting Elvis on the back and, you know, letting him know that he's welcome. And thus, I think, you know, by a surrogate, like, you know, the, the, this, the white audience that's consuming this film, who are presumably Elvis fans, don't need to think too much about, you know, the, the very, very thorny legacies of this, of this person and his, and his music and his impact on, you know, global culture. Yeah, it had the odd effect of making me feel like the Vegas Elvis was the truest, most authentic one. It like kind of it kind of flipped the moral intent of the movie for me and it's like, yeah, at least that guy kind of is what he was, you know, at that point this kind of cheesy Americana simulacrum is the sort of truest Elvis in some weird way. All right. Well, Jack, as always, a total pleasure. The movie is Elvis, directed by Baz Luhrmann, as of now only in theaters. And Jack's wonderful piece, which I highly recommend, is called Elvis Was a Con. It's up on Slate right now. Check it out. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Well, before we go any further, typically right around here, we discuss business. Dana, what do you uh, what do you have? Steve, a couple of things this week. First of all, about this year's Summer Strut episode, which we've been talking about for the last few episodes. This is our special summer tradition of having you all send in your favorite strutting summer songs. We make a crowdsourced playlist and we listen to it and pick our favorites for an episode later this summer. I just wanted to warn you that we've had such a big response to Summer Strut this year that we need to cap the episode this week. So you're going to have one more day from the time this episode drops on Wednesday to send us your songs. If you can send us your submissions to Summer strut by this thursday june the 30th we will put them on the playlist after that we're gonna have to cap it because it gets so long that we can't even make it through to choose our favorites i love everything about this ritual it's a brainchild of julia turner and um it's just become a great annual fest for uh for us and um you know, I think a serious part of the art of podcasting is talking as if no one's listening um to the extent that you begin to forget people are actually listening and uh so it's it's you wonder if you have an audience and it's just really this part of it turns out to be really fun too you send it out there and then the next thing you know you get this this deluge of really sweet really thoughtful emails with uh cool song titles so you know serious like a hearty thank you to the people who sent them in and you know if you can by thursday midnight that'd be great Our second item of business this week is just to tell you all about this week's Slate Plus segment. We're going to answer a listener question from a listener named Marin, who wrote a really well-written and I thought very funny email that I identified with a lot. It was actually my suggestion that we do this one this week. She asks us, is there anything right now in this exhausted, post-COVID, just 
completely uh, <laughs> mentally and physically fried moment of our nation that any of us are actually enjoying. <laughs> and she says, here's a quote from her email, my answer, frankly, is nothing much. And that's because of the perfect storm of post-COVID exhaustion, peak TV exhaustion and decline, and social media internet exhaustion and decline. And she continues, the only thing that keeps me afloat right now culturally is the rediscovery of older stuff. So in all honesty, what are you really excited about right now? Uh, I really liked this question, I think in part because I, all three of us, when we mentioned it on our, our topics call, had to flounder for a moment to think about what we are excited about right now. So we will explore some of those answers in today's Slate Plus segment. If you are a member of Slate Plus, you can hear that at the end of the show. And as always, if you're not, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. In return for signing up for Slate Plus, you will get ad-free podcasts every week, bonus content like the segment I just described, members-only programming on plenty of other shows, and of course, unlimited access to all of the writing on Slate.com. And you will also be supporting us, our work, and the work of all of our great colleagues. These memberships matter a lot to us and our show, so please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Okay, Steve, back to the show. All right. Well, there's a new Hulu series called The Old Man. The title character is Dan Chase. He's a widower deep into his retirement years, a lonely insomniac whose best company is his two dogs. But recently, he's got a kind of itch, like a little spidey sense, an unsettled feeling. And uh, the premonition turns out to be true. Dan, as we discover, is actually a secret identity. Bridges, the Bridges character, has been living in deep self-imposed cover. He was a CIA guy. He retired, uh, and they didn't want him to. And now his worst, most menacing enemy has found him and is looking to extract belated revenge. In addition to Bridges, the show stars John Lithgow as an old colleague and frenemy who'd prefer that Dan stay buried, and Amy Brenneman as the divorcee who becomes his landlady and lover. In this clip, we're about to hear Dan's on the phone with his beloved daughter. In order to keep her safe, though, he must now sever ties with her. Let's listen. I don't have time to argue this, Emily. You're going to have to take my word for it. What are you afraid of? What am I afraid of? You heard me. I'm afraid someone's going to find you, torture you, and kill you to get to me. They frightened you with that? I don't know. That sounds pretty goddamn frightening to me, Emily. Well, then frighten them back. You've told me what you used to do. I, I mean, you've told me what you're capable of. I told of. you some of what I used to do. I wanted you to come home from school at the end of the day. If I told you everything I used to do, I'm not sure you would have wanted to. You don't know how ugly these things can get when they get ugly, Em. You have no idea what I did, who I was, and at this point in my life, I want to keep it that way. Well, then frighten them back. That's the Julia Turner... Uh life motto, right? <laughs> Julia, what did you think of this TV show? I mean, I'm in. I'm in. Um, this show leans into the old in its title, right? Like it opens with a joke about late night urination by old men. Um, there's a lot of like achy, creaky, grabbing the back as you stand up. But as you stand up, not from like picking up the TV remote where it dropped, but instead as you stand up from having like brutally kicked the ass of a bunch of like young gun government guys out to get you. Um, so it seems to combine uh, being, you know, sort of a like spy thriller set, set in domestic territory 
with being a commentary on getting old. We also have John Lithgow in it. Um, Amy Brenneman shows up for what seems like it would be a small role, except for that it's played by Amy Brenneman. So you're like, well, huh, I wonder where this is going to go in the manner of the famous person showing up in the Law & Order episode. And then you also just have a, an, an acting showcase for Jeff Bridges, which is always a good thing. I, I'm in. I was like bummed that there weren't more episodes out for us to consume before we talked. Mm. All right. Julia liked it, Dana. Are you going to follow her in this uh, or or no? Yeah, I have to agree. This is based on a suspense novel that was apparently a big bestseller and very popular by Thomas Perry. And it has a little bit that feeling. I mean, there's some ge- very generic beats that are a little bit like an airport novel with embossed gold letters in the title. But Jeff Bridges makes it all so human and makes it all hang together so well. And in a way, it's although you, you can hear his typical laconic delivery in that clip we heard, it's a very atypical Jeff Bridges role because how often does he A, play an action hero and B, you know, he's not kind of a laconic, easygoing stoner here. He is, in fact, a, you know, full on deep cover, you know, even in his 70s, I can beat up all comers of, of any age and all levels of training kind of super spy dude. And uh, and he makes that believable, too. So even though, yeah, even though this this kind of has a lot to overcome in terms of its, um, its f- familiar spy story structure, the combination of John Lithgow and Jeff Bridges as these, you know, old timer adversaries. I mean, you see if you watch all the episodes that are available so far that they have this sort of rivalry slash friendship colleagueship that goes way, way back. And I'm sure we'll learn a lot more about that. But the two of them just have such gravitas that they're able to make their characters have backstory by just sheer force of will, just by furnishing their own backstories in a way. I I was also very moved to read that Jeff Bridges had a health backstory while making Mm. this the making of this show was interrupted by the pandemic, A, and B, by Jeff Bridges getting COVID and lymphoma, I guess, at the same time or one on top of the other and, you know, being very, very ill. And then, thank gosh, knock wood, he's well again and back making the show. But I feel like that's all bundled into it as well. And, there, and so there's a real sense of a kind of gratitude to be here in his character that I, I'm sure is a part is continuous with his real life story. We also haven't mentioned the dogs. There's two dogs named Carol and Dave that are a combination of, you know, the the loyal, snuggly pets of this main character, Dan Chase, and also his uh, his his companions in killing anybody who is dispatched to kill him so there's some really really brutal fights involving Mm -hmm. jeff bridges and two dogs sicked on a person in particular i'm sure you guys got to this probably in the second episode that fight in a car that goes on and on and on and it's really actually beautifully filmed but it's a pretty brutal action scene especially for tv usually tv action doesn't have that kind of extreme fight choreography you know it feels more like something almost from a martial arts movie so there's a lot to love here. I like the idea of the grouchy, anonymous oldster who's deeply settled into a boring, faceless life on purpose and uh, is forced to unretire. I think that's a great trope. Um, the other thing I absolutely love about it is, you know, Dan's assumed a personality to go with the fake name and backstory and it involves being an innocuous anonymous he's playing off of how anonymized older people are in our culture the character is in a way that's very deft and very interesting he makes himself seem harmless asexual incapable of 
by implication of violence, uh, uh, he hides very deeply within this this facade of an innocuous old man, and his face. So he's an he's a actor acting the part of a man acting a part so beautifully. I love the face that he puts on this kind of like quizzical. I'm not quite following you, and I'm just harmless. Uh, you know, just pass me by. Face is is wonderful. It's a feat of acting on Bridges' part. Uh, and then when it drops, it's also amazing. He's suddenly a much fresher, more nimble, deft thinking and physically deft human being uh, on a dime. And um, and Dana, I think you're absolutely right that just in their own persons as human beings, Lithgow and, and Bridges invest anything they do with depth of feeling and experience and therefore backstory, which they need to because the thing that I liked least about this was young Jeff Bridges, the flashback to the incident that sends him into deep cover, which should be interesting in itself. And um, I just thought that actor was put in a somewhat impossible position. He's so bad. He's really bad. You're totally right. I liked him. I thought he was pretty good. Oh, no, he's awful. I mean, and he's he's in an impossible position. He has to impersonate, you know, Bridges. And in fact, he's sort of impersonating older Jeff Bridges. And, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. Those scenes are inert to me. Um, there are a lot of familiar genre beats here to to me. And it just, it's like substituting long, meaningless pauses for sinister depth a little too often. But I also kind of love this kind of thing. And I'm going to stick with it. And Amy Brenneman, we haven't talked about her much, but it's great to see her again. And she's really, really good in this role of, you know, it's, it's it could easily be the thankless role of a damsel in distress because she's this, you know, woman innocent of, of the entire past of Jeff Bridges' character who comes into contact with him and goes on what she thinks is a normal date with him. And then very quickly, everything becomes violent and dangerous and scary. Um, but she still manages to seem very steely and tough and like somebody with her own story and her own free will. And I, I'm really hoping that she stays in the show, Julia, and she doesn't become like a, a law and order casualty of the first few episodes. She's too good an actress to get killed right away, is my view. Um, you know, you don't bring Amy Brenneman back to, to knock her off so fast, but yeah, it's, I had, I had basically just blocked out all the parts of the show that are dumb. I mean, the flashbacks are saved by the fact that I think the guy who plays young John Lithgow is actually better. And then the woman who plays the young, um, version of the Jeff Bridges character's eventual wife I think is wonderful and like uh, it gives a very compelling performance and makes those scenes interesting. But um, yeah, I also our listen. I hope our listeners can help me with this. The young, the young Jeff Bridges who has this impossible task of like be as good an actor as Jeff Bridges, but seem like younger and more virile and charismatic. And it's like, whoop. and he just kind of has like a, plank a, like a two by four for a face like there's just no expression on it is how how he responds to the challenge but but he he's like an exact voice double for someone please someone in our listenership tell me who the young dude is the voice double for i was bothering me the whole time every time he was on screen i was trying to figure out he's has the exact same voice as as someone i did what i did and i do it again because it led to us I don't care what your name is, or mine. All I care about is growing old with you. And there's also, there's a plot twist that I won't spoil, um, but it was quite obvious and easy to see coming, and they they spend a bunch of time setting up 
a mystery and then there's like a big swooping zoom in reveal to like who is that and it's like yeah duh i saw yeah. that coming a mile away can i say i so haven't gotten to that point in the show and i know exactly what that moment is going to look like <laughs> and who it's going to reveal to be whom. yes i, I i'm i'm with you so it's not perfect but it's just extremely good i think i mean wouldn't you send people to watch it steve absolutely i mean but there's there's like yeah, this is like uh ah, you just exhausted the queue and uh please tell me you've already watched slow horses and yeah why not that's it's more that's like that that's my level of enthusiasm here what about you dana I mean, I think Jeff Bridges is what pushes it for me. I, I, it, yeah. I, I can't, I, mean, I can't make an argument based on the the show's values point by point. I can just say that I care enough about Jeff Bridges and that character and the continuation of that story and that romance with Amy Brenneman that I myself, like Julia, wish that there was one more episode to click up and watch right now. So take that for whatever it means. Okay. All right. Well, the show is uh, the Old Man. Uh, I found it on Hulu. It's a joint production with FX. Uh, check it out. And, uh, you know, as always, when we're kind of a little bit fence-sitting, I mean, you know, on the plus side of the fence, it's great to hear from listeners who may have lo- loved or loathed it. So shoot us an email. Okay, moving on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. Okay, well, our final segment, we're going to discuss a uh, an article in The Cut, a division of New York Magazine, canceled at 17 by the journalist Elizabeth Weil. Uh, it is a story about a 17-year-old boy, Diego, high school kid, who uh, has what amounts to his first relationship, maybe not his first ever, ever relationship, but his first sort of serious relationship with a young woman, a girl, classmate. And according to the article at a party one night, he gets drunk um, and he shows, as the article says, a nude of his beautiful girlfriend to a few kids there. Over the subsequent weeks and months, Diego finds himself really almost totally canceled at his high school. People won't even sit next to him in class. Uh, there's a lot of graffiti naming him as an abuser. Uh, he's placed at least on something of a moral continuum with people who've committed sexual abuse and even rape. Uh, and his parents get involved. Uh, Juliet, the, the, I, I want to leave the summary there because there are so many details here um, and only say that what I found most difficult about this is trying to understand what might count as ordinary ostracization among a peer group, which is going to happen regardless of what intervention the adult world makes within it. And in fact, any such intervention might heighten it. And what counts 
as bullying, even though I understand that that question only gets settled if you can first understand the nature of Diego's crime, which he, and I don't mean in a legal sense, his transgression, which he admits was an awful transgression. And that's where my brain locks up. Um, and I will now defer to you. Yeah, I mean, the reason that this story is a magazine cover, right, is for the headline, Cancelled at 17. And it draws, I think, a lot of its power, or at least its reason to exist, from the idea that it is exploring cancellation and the cancellation instinct um, and the idea that... uh, once you do something bad, there is no redemption and there is a, you know, public culture of shame for, for ill behavior at the moment, right? Like, if we didn't have the word or the concept of cancellation floating around the culture right now, would New York Mag do a cover story that's like, a bunch of kids was, were mean to another kid in high school? Kids were cruel in high school? Like, that's not news. Like, that's been happening forever. So the the the... The idea, I think, is that the piece, and, and I don't say those things to dismiss the article or to suggest that it's not drawing a portrait of a particular moment in the psyches of American teenagers in the wake of, you know, Me Too and the pandemic and the stresses of the world right now. But that was the thought experiment I found myself conducting as I read the piece continuously. Um I wish that it had been more precise actually about how that term is thrown around. I do think the term is thrown around among young people. I don't think the only people who are canceled are like disgraced news anchors and like um, lecherous professors, you know, like I, I, I know a bunch of people in their young twenties who talk about cancellation casually as like a fear, a thing that might happen to them in college, a, thing that's happened to people that they know. Um, so I think it is like language from the adult world that is traveling down into the world of young people and shaping the way that they treat each other. But then also, of course, the way that young people treat each other is terrible and has often been terrible. And what Diego did was terrible. And then the kind of level of social consequences he faced for it also seems extreme, certainly in the framing that this article gives it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I found it to be an interesting read, but also maybe one that didn't grapple as much as I wished it had with how this particular moment in teen ostracization and consciousness is different from past moments. Hmm. He didn't seem particularly curious about that, and that felt like an oversight to me. Yeah, I'm really glad you went to Julia first because she, as the editor among us, can have an eye for what this is trying to do as a piece of journalism, you know, in, in addition to however we feel about it as a piece of writing or as as to its um, as, as to how accurate it feels to our own experience of the world, teenage and otherwise. I mean, personally, I, I found this article somewhat offensive in its in its sloppiness and its in its approach to you know as you say Julia this what is in fact a, a significant 
part of both teen culture and adult culture and media culture right now. The question of what, quote, cancellation is and who is doing it to whom and what that means. That's something that requires a lot of precise language right now. And this article did not contribute to the discourse at all in that way in, in terms of, you know, defining what that could mean or should mean or whether it's a term that we should keep encouraging the use of at all. In the very opening of the piece describes Diego, which is the fake name given to this teenager who shared the nude of his girlfriend, um, as enormously appealing, but also very canceled. And that just feels already so uh, editorializing, you know, that that framing. Okay, first of all, he's enormously appealing. All right, so he's the protagonist of our story, but he's also very canceled. So someone bad must have canceled him. There's just something about, about the sloppy passivity of that language that just irritated me right from the start. And in general, Maybe in the interest of protecting people's privacy. I mean, obviously, I understand why the names are changed, and it's not exactly clear where this is happening. But there's that that gives a sort of vagueness to this article, where I sometimes couldn't tell why we were learning certain details and not other details, why certain characters entered the story and then exited it, what point was being made by all of this, except to give us all this vague hand-wringing sense that teenagers are canceling each other and it's this terrible thing. And mm -hmm. if you actually go through, and I, this is not me even trying to take a side against or for Diego, this main name character in the, in the article, but if you actually go through and look at what happened to his senior year, it doesn't seem that terrible. <laughs> I mean, given that teens have historically always been able to produce enormous cruelty, social cruelty against one another and, you know, stigma and so forth. It just didn't seem like this kid had it that bad. I mean, at the end of the article, he goes to four different proms, including his own prom. He's about to graduate and go off to college where the article's author, Elizabeth Weil, suggests that he's going to have a, a fresh start and a clean slate. And it sort of seems like, yeah, you had a bad senior year in high school because you made a bad choice. What's what's the big deal? I think the interesting story that could have been uncovered there that the article doesn't spend a lot of time on is how the school handled the situation with Diego and his girlfriend and other scandals that are mentioned that happened in the same year. It seemed like, you know, Title IX was being invoked in all kinds of ways that were sort of against its intent. In other words, trying to protect Diego in this situation. His mom tried to use, unsuccessfully tried to use a Title IX complaint to get her son uncanceled for whatever that would mean. And the school seems to have handled all of that rather poorly. And I would much rather have read about that than about mm -hmm. what doesn't really seem to rise to the level of a New York Magazine cover story. Like, as you said, Julia, teen is mean to other teen. Mm. I thought it was more gripping that that but no less problematic but in the following sense that you know i agree that the author of the piece doesn't seem wholly agnostic here um and that that, that in presenting his transgression uh uh and then the the subsequent utter totality of his cancellation her finger is sort of on the scales a little bit but i'm stepping back from that where one as a reader comes out on the article comes from whether you perce perceive some kind of an imbalance there, that the scales of justice are just so massively skewed in the direction of a, you know, I mean, by one narrative, a received story about what constitutes victimhood and what doesn't, right? I mean, it, there's just a, let's even say highly appropriately sensitized language of, of victimization, belated, like, I mean, just uh, clearly there is over the treatment of women that needs public redress, um, you know, there are 
one possible takeaway is that there's no corresponding language about the experience of Diego and that the article is addressed to, you know, itself addressed towards that imbalance. Um, you know, I find myself totally agnostic here. I am just absolutely the wrong person as an old white guy to pronounce on it in any way whatsoever. Nonetheless, I found it interesting for a bunch of reasons. One is that setting aside whether or not it should or shouldn't be any kind of normative argument about whether or not safety should be defined as far down as it has been, whether that is compensating for a whopping insensitivity to the suffering of, you know, historically disesteemed people, which I absolutely believe it is, you know, nonetheless, it's hard not to notice that, that what comes under the definition of unsafe and feeling unsafe now is quite broad in some sense. Where did that come from? I kept asking myself. And I think it's a couple of things. I think, first of all, it's very hard to grow up in a world in which you see adult impunity. Um, you see impunity everywhere in in the world of um, uh, the adult world doled out totally inequitably, right? So there's elite impunity in the public world that a generation of young people have grown up in. And it makes sense that there's this compensatory urge towards justice that comes perhaps more from peer groups than from systems, you know, formal systems of, of redress. I totally get that, totally understand it. I do think it is paired with this odd paradox it's paired with helicopter parenting in a way i mean uh, and i'm here i am absolutely guilty of that right i was a helicopter parent i couldn't help it i desperately wanted to keep my daughter safe you know just beginning right from the the, the very earliest experience of their lives of course that's internalized by them and i see how it plays out over a young life right it it it, it involves a radical redefinition away from you know, how we grew up thinking of safety and unsafety. But there's a curious effect now. I mean, my daughters are sort of coming up a generation slightly behind the Diegos with a difference that does seem crucial. So one of the reasons they love the television show Stranger Things, Juliet, is you'll never believe it. They say, oh my God, growing up in the 1980s seems so cool. Like, <laughs> you, you could get on a fucking banana bike and your parents were like, I'd just be back by dinner, Right. Like, be back by sunset. Like, see ya. You know, and, you know, it's like that. what we grew up with was like latchkey, you know, parenting, absentee parenting, which really characterized the 70s and 80s in a new way, I think. You know, they perceive completely as freedom. It's like, get the fucking helicopter out of my horizon, you know? Um, anyway, I, I don't know. Otherwise, I don't know what to make of it, really. Did it bother you guys at all that the article seemed a little bit leering in a weird way? I mean, if it had been by a man, I think it would have been called out maybe more for this. But there was this physical description of Fiona, which is the fake name of the girl whose nude was shared, that was sort of reveling in her beauty and her freckles and her, you know, fresh skin or something. There was just there was something about this this article that seemed at once to to want to take a side on cancel culture and also to kind of revel in this this idea of a teen nude being shared. I don't know. It was a little pervy or something. This in general, yeah. I was surprised it made it through an editor in the shape it was in. I mean, I think the part of the goal there, right, like one of the comments I read on it was like, why not tell the stories of one of the multiple boys whose names were put on the list of boys to watch out for on the wall who weren't guilty of anything at all and who were just, um, you know, mistaken for a different boy who did something jerky to a girl. 
which is a thing that happens in the narrative of the story. Um, and I understand that, like the inter- like the power of the word cancellation and the interest in the concept of cancellation. You know, there's there's two fears, right? There's the fear of the false accusation, but then there's also just the fear of like, okay, so redemption is never possible, so you're just done for forever. So I think there was a real effort to make the sin seem innocent in a way, seem seem understandable, seem like the kind of thing like a doofy, lovesick young idiot might do as opposed to like a sex crime. Um, So I thought that was the point of the rhetorical gambits about the milky skin or whatever the hell. But yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that story just wasn't precise in all the ways that you wanted it to be, to feel like it actually had something novel and interesting to say about this moment. Like the question of how does the adult conversation about and anxieties about cancellation filter down into the usual drama of a teen high school? And I think you're right. How does the high school handle that? How does it change or not change discipline? Um, is potentially a subject for a good article, but I do not think this was that article. Mm. All right. Well, it's canceled at 17. It's in the cut. Uh, a derivative of New York Magazine. Uh, check it out. This is uh, one we'll probably get mail on, and um, we'd love to hear from you. Okay, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, would you bring us? Steve, I rarely do an endorsement that is a movie that I've just reviewed because I sort of feel like, well, I just said everything I have to say about it, so why would I go on and endorse it more? But I'm going to make an exception for the movie I reviewed last week because it's such a good movie, and because of the horrible Supreme Court news that kept breaking last week, it really went under the radar, even though it's at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes and was extremely well-reviewed and seems destined to be a a beloved movie. I also am afraid that it's not going to get the audiences in theaters, and it is right now only in theaters that it deserves. And that movie is Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. I'm sure you guys remember when Jenny Slate appeared on our at our live show in LA probably eight years back or so. It was when the movie Obvious Child came out. Yeah. But I can't remember at the time if she talked about, about Marcel the Shell. It was a character that had preceded. I think that character has existed she definitely since 2010 did. I think, I think so. she did talk about it a little bit because it was just blowing up so huge on YouTube. Right. So he was this this little creature that she does the voice for and that her ex-husband, Dean Fleischerkamp, created a little shell body for, has already been the subject of a few viral videos back in the early 2010s and also two children's books, two ch- children's picture books that were bestsellers and did really well. But he is now the subject of a full-length feature film that is so sui generis and just the sweetest, loveliest thing. It is definitely child-friendly. You could take a kid to it, but it's not really a film for children because it is about some some heavy stuff without giving anything away. It is about, you know, loss and grief and family connections. And it's just a, a lovely little film about a tiny little guy who sees the world in a, in a unique way. And uh, something that I particularly love about it is that is the creation of this this couple of Dean Fleischer Camp, who directed the movie, and Jenny Slate, who used to be married, were together at the time they created this character, have since split up and are now with other people. But the shell outlived their marriage. And I love the fact that, you know, this I write about this a bit in my review of the movie, that an in-joke you have, you know, with somebody you love 
might become take on a life of its own and become some art that other people could continue to experience after you know that phase of your life is over. That's just a very sort of moving meta story to Marcel the Shell. But even if you knew nothing about the creation story behind it, I think you just would find this movie utterly irresistible. And the voice work by mainly Jenny Slate and Isabella Rossellini, who plays the other Shell in the movie, is just fantastic. So Marcel the Shell with shoes on, don't miss it when it's in the theaters. It's just lovely. Ah, so fun. Julia, what do you have? Do you know that I went to high school with Jenny Slate? She and my sister were in all the same school plays. Ah, so I did time, know that, but long I think that's, uh, that's great. So she was already a drama kid? She was. She was. Um, my endorsement is a return to something we discussed. I went back and started catching up on the rest of the episodes of Abbott Elementary, which was that really smart sitcom set in a Philadelphia public school that we talked about, I don't know, a couple months back. Oh, yeah. Sure, yeah, Man, yeah. Man, that show is good. It's so good. Like, I was just looking last night, I was like, oh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I want something kind of fun and light that will keep me company while I do some, make myself some soup. Um, and I just, like, blaze through four more episodes, and those characters get even more specific and even more delightful and... The little fledgling flickers of romance got even more tantalizing and um, just great show. Like if you did not follow our advice and didn't watch it, click it up. And if like me, you started it and then sort of forgot about it, go, go buckle down. It's on, it's on Hulu um, and it's so good. Oh, cool. Yeah, no, I, I've been meaning to go back. That's a great prompt. Uh, okay, so wholeheartedly I endorsed this week an essay I read that I missed the first time around. It's from a couple years ago by an uh, author I'm ashamed to say I didn't wasn't familiar with, and I've been reading her stuff. She's terrific, named uh, Hannah Zevin, Z-E-A-V-I-N. Uh, the article was in N Plus One. It's called Unfree Associations. And it's what I, I love so many things about it. It has this quiet, but nonetheless, vervy confidence to it. It uh, has a real point and it brings together so many threads. I mean, it both has a personal story about her stepfather who becomes an object of an internet outrage campaign. He was an analyst who had written, a, um, a, he had coined a term called parasitic whiteness and had written about the relationship between analysis and race. Um, and uh, it, it, uh, the right got a hold of it. He became an object of Tucker hate on uh, on, on hate TV, and uh, and then finally the the left chimed in and said that he was uh, the identity left chimed in and said he was the wrong person to write this piece. He'd done it insensitively or or somehow mistakenly, uh, and he was just a punching bag. And then um, it it the, the outrage disappeared. And but she um, meditates on this in a way that's to me, completely brilliant, sort of revelatory, because she brings in the history of Freudian analysis as the history of a therapist presenting a completely blank slate to the patient in order to encourage them to, in Freudian terminology, have a transference in order to bring their associations, uh, habits, mental habits, deep mental, suppressed mental habits, or unconscious mental habits to the surface, by turning the therapist into um, all of the things they love, hate, desire, resent, which can only fully happen if the therapist uh, withholds him or herself or themselves uh, uh, in a very radical um, way. And that's always been somewhat controversial, um, and um, it's undergone huge revision, but it was the core of Freud's practice. And what the, how talking about race and power 
as they operate not only outside of the therapist's office, but within it, um, is still seen in some circles as a radical thing to do. And her stepfather, Donald Moss, really did it in an interesting way while bringing in a kind of critical race theory twist to it. And I thought the piece was so deep and confident and thoughtful about issues that have no easy side to them, but it was nonetheless, it had a kind of steady moral centeredness to it that pays out in her, you know, announcing where she arrives at. And it's the essay in the truest sense, right? It's like kind of not a rigorously argued argument, but an exploration, but it ends someplace via exploration quite uh, definite. I thought it was a very, I mean, I thought it was really just a tremendously accomplished piece of writing and I highly recommend it. So the piece is called Unfree Associations, Parasitic Whiteness on and Off the Couch. It was in N plus one. It's available on the internet. It's uh, by Hannah Zevin, highly recommended. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Dana, thank you. That was fun. Thanks a lot, Steve. You will find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Bertel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.